Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Voyeur's Motel. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. Hey everyone, Rebecca here. If you're a listener, I'm sure you're aware that Halloween is fast approaching. This year, we decided to do something really fucking cool. Leading up to October 31st, we'll be profiling some of the strangest, most haunted hotels in the world. And guess what? I'll be staying at some of them as I drive from a top secret work thing back to Podcast HQ in Los Angeles. Yes, I know, I'm terrified. This means that not only will you be getting your usual order of piping hot Google searched episodes, but we'll have photos, video, and audio from the hotels themselves. Wish me luck and minimal trauma. Well, this one is just chilling. An Aurora motel owner watched his guests in some of the most intimate moments without them even knowing this. Now, this wasn't just once. It went on for decades. That's me walking down Colfax in Denver, Colorado, towards the Aurora Hotel, which was once the Manor House Motel. It looks pretty unimpressive. This hotel was, for decades, the voyeuristic sex playground of owner Gerald Foos, who was befriended by a journalist for his sex studies, among other hotel adventures and were eventually exposed to the world. This is the story of Gerald Foos and the Manor House Motel. Gerald Foos was born in the 40s to German-American farmers in a small town called Alt, about 65 miles outside of Denver. His upbringing was very American, raised with kind-hearted people around him, but sexually repressed people, in his words. Foos himself seemed very into sex from a very young age, and observing the sexual identities of others. His mom, for example, got dressed every morning in her closet, and he never witnessed either of his parents exhibiting an interest in sex at all, he said. And so, being very curious about sex, even as an early adolescent, with all those farm animals around, how could you avoid thinking of sex? I looked beyond my home to learn what I could about people's private lives. And oh boy, did he lean into that. On January 7th, 1980, New York journalist Gay Talese received a handwritten special delivery letter from an unidentified person, Foos. It said, Dear Mr. Talese, since learning of your long-awaited study of coast-to-coast sex in America, which will be included in your soon-to-be-published book, Thy Neighbor's Wife, I feel I have important information that I could contribute to its contents or to contents of a future book. Talese writes a lot about psychology and human sexuality. Thy Neighbor's Wife is about the hidden sex lives of Americans. Foos goes on to describe the motel he'd owned for over 10 years. 
The reason for purchasing this motel was to satisfy my voyeuristic tendencies and compelling interest in all phases of how people conduct their lives, both socially and sexually. I did this purely out of my unlimited curiosity about people and not just as a deranged voyeur. He explained that he had logged an accurate record of the majority of the individuals that he watched and compiled interesting statistics on each, i.e. what was done, what was said, their individual characteristics, age and body type, part of the country from where they came, and their sexual behavior. These individuals were from every walk of life. He says, I have seen most human emotions and all their humor and tragedy carried to completion. Sexually, I have witnessed, observed, and studied the best firsthand, unrehearsed, non-laboratory sex between couples and most other conceivable sex deviations during these past 15 years. My main objective in wanting to provide you with this confidential information is the belief that it could be valuable to people in general and sex researchers in particular. The letter goes on to say that Foos himself sucks at writing and didn't want to be discovered. So he invites Talise to Colorado to give his motel a look. So Talise puts the letter aside and really takes in what a gigantic admission, violation, etc. that he's just read. But he's also intrigued. Fu's research was oddly similar to Talise's in his book. He had, for example, kept notes while managing massage parlors in New York and hung out with swingers at a SoCal nudist commune. Of course, the big difference was that Talise actually got consent. Talise was planning to be in Phoenix later that month, so he stopped over in Denver where Foos met him at the Denver airport baggage claim. Talise's first impression of Foos was that he was friendly and normal-looking. He was in his mid-40s with glasses and around six foot tall, wearing a tan jacket and an open-collar dress shirt that seemed a little bit too small. Talise then agreed to stay at the motel for a couple of days. We'll put you in one of the rooms that doesn't provide me with viewing privileges, Foos said, smiling. Talise signed a document saying he wouldn't identify Foos by name or publicly associate his motel with whatever information he shared. Talise, however, had already decided that he would absolutely write about Gerald Foos if he were to write about him at all, which he wasn't planning to do. He was just curious about this man and his bizarre, grotesque experiment. On the way from the airport to the motel, Foos got right into it, describing his first voyeuristic experience. When he was nine, his 29-year-old aunt walked around nude in her bedroom at night with the shutters open, and Gerald, who lived next door, would watch for an hour or so every evening. Cute. This went on for five or six years. His Aunt Catherine liked to sit at her dressing table with no clothes on, arranging her miniature porcelain dolls or her collection of, quote, valuable thimbles. Talise remarks in his New Yorker article on the drive home that, As a journalist, I do not recall meeting anyone who required less of me than he did. He did all the talking while I sat and listened. The car was his confessional. So how did Foos take his kink and run with it so hard? He was a virgin throughout high school and after enlisting in the Navy, learned about sex through girls he met on his tours. Still, he also kept fantasizing about his aunt. When he returned from service, Foos married Donna, his high school girlfriend, who was a nurse at the hospital in nearby Aurora. Foos began working as a field auditor and hated it. To escape the tedium of work, he started doing what he called voyeuristic excursions at night. He'd cruise neighborhoods, seeing what people were up to in their houses. Sometimes Donna, who was surprisingly cool with this, would accompany him. It was also Donna who first encouraged him to make notes about what he saw. Foos became obsessed with voyeurism and recording his observations, and soon he took it to the next level. 
He bought the Manor Hotel for $145,000 to be the site of his voyeuristic laboratory. It was perfect, discreet with a high roof, high enough for him to walk upright across the attic floor, making it possible to create a viewing platform to peer into a swath of guest rooms below. It took him months to make the motel's viewing vents in the top of the viewing rooms. He'd initially considered installing two-way mirrors in the ceilings, but he thought it would be too incriminating if discovered. With Donna's help, of course, Foos would secure the screen to the plywood floor and rafters with long, flathead screws. He then put three layers of shag carpeting over a central strip of the attic floor so no footsteps could be heard. Foos started watching guests in the winter of 1966. Sometimes he'd be intrigued, sometimes bored, sometimes it was so hot that Donna would come watch with him and the two would have sex. Sometimes Donna would just bring him a snack before her nursing shift. He never felt guilty, but Foos did feel a constant fear of being found out. He stood by the fact that what he did in the attic was innocent. He said that he was indulging his curiosity within the boundaries of his own property, and because his guests were unaware of his voyeurism, they were not affected. Donna would sign guests in, and the ones she deemed attractive would go into the viewing rooms. The nine non-viewing rooms were saved for families or individuals or couples who were just not so appealing. After saying goodnight to his mother-in-law and two kids, Foos and Talise got into a utility room and went up a blue ladder. There in the attic was the pitched roof and the carpeted catwalk about three feet wide, extending over the ceilings of the 21 guest rooms. The two crawled towards the lights of one of the vents where a couple was having sex. As Talise bent his head down to look, his tie dangled into the motel room right next to the woman who was having sex's head. Foos grabbed him and yanked him back up to the roof. Embarrassing, of course, but the next day Foos didn't seem to be bothered by it. He showed Talise his manuscript that day, all of his notes that he called the Voyeur's Journal. He promised to send these to Talise in New York, which he does. Well, only 19 pages, but what pages they are. Let's talk about them after the break. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It looks like fall is already here. People are headed back to school and the office. For me, I'm looking forward to the spooky season and as usual, playing Best Fiends. Best Fiends is my go-to when I need a break from researching true crime and the paranormal. Best Fiends is that perfect travel companion for that much-needed break. You can take Best Fiends with you everywhere, and it doesn't require Wi-Fi, so no excuses. Collect more of your favorite cute characters as you try to defeat one more challenging level. I've personally made it past level 700, and Best Fiends has over 5,000 levels, so the fun is endless. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Every time you play, there's always something new to experience. Make the most of your downtime and spend some time with Best Fiends. 
Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play for free today. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hi, hello, how are you doing? Hello. We hope you are well. We want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you to our patrons and to our government. The mayors. Ashley Matson. Hello. David Bull. Hello. Joshua Lambert. Hello. Dara Rosenzweig. Hello. And James Harrington. Hello. And our fearless leader, sitting in her ghost town mansion, paid for by the taxpayers, Avian Noble. Hello. So if you want early access with no chit-chat or ads, bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash ghosttownpod. All right, enough business. Now for some pleasure. But not, I mean, not pleasure, but now for the content, I guess. So Talise, again, he doesn't, like, he's still processing all of this, and he just has to give it some context. So he's got this manuscript, and he does some digging, where he finds some inconsistencies in Fuse's story. For example, the first entries in his Voyeur's journal are dated 1966, but the deed of sale for the manor house shows that he purchased the place in 1969. And there are other dates in his notes and journals that just don't quite scan. Again, he could be making some of the stuff up, even though the truth, the truth that Talese saw is disturbing enough. Here's an entry from November 24th, 1966. Subject 1, Mr. and Mrs. W. of Southern Colorado. Description, approximately 35-year-old male in Denver on business, 5'10", 180 pounds, white collar, probably college educated. Wife, 35 years old, 5'4", 130 pounds, pleasing plump, dark hair, Italian extraction, educated, 37, 28, 37. Activity, room 10 was rented to this couple at 7 p.m. After going to the bathroom with the door closed, she sat in front of the mirror looking at her hair and remarked she was getting gray. He was in an argumentative mood and appeared disagreeable with his assignment in Denver. The evening passed uneventful until 8.30 p.m. when she finally undressed, revealing a beautiful body, slightly plump but sexually attractive anyway. He appeared disinterested while she laid on the bed beside him, and he began smoking one cigarette after another and watching TV. Finally, after kissing and fondling her, he quickly gained an erection and entered her in the male superior position, with little or no foreplay, and orgasmed in approximately five minutes. She had no orgasm and went to the bathroom. Conclusion. They are not a happy couple. He is too concerned about his position and doesn't have time for her. He is very ignorant of sexual procedure and foreplay despite his college education. This is a very undistinguished beginning for my observation laboratory. I'm certain things will improve. And Talise keeps reading these entries, one after the other. Foos liked to strike up casual conversations with his subject after he'd observed them. If he discovered that a guest lived close to him in the Denver area, he would sometimes follow the person home after checkout. He'd talk about how they went to the bathroom, what they talked about, how much they smoked. He even designed a test for guests he called the honesty test, where he would leave a suitcase with money in it for guests to find and return. The results were split. As Talise keeps reading these entries over and over, he notices Fu's kind of losing his grip and becoming, or his voice in his journals becoming more godlike and cynical and bombastic, he even risks exposure with some of his guests. One time, he's looking into a room and saw a guest eating Kentucky Fried Chicken while sitting on the bed. Instead of using paper napkins, the man cleaned his hands on the bed sheets. Foos shouted at him above from the vent, you son of a bitch. The guy stops, looks around, and continues eating. And one time, Foos sees a murder. 
He describes a young couple who had rented a room for several weeks. He says, The man in his late 20s was about 180 pounds, a drug dealer. He was a college dropout and a small-time drug dealer. The girl was a blonde with a 34D bust. Foos had gone into the room while the couple was out and checked her bra size, something he says he did often. Ugh. Foos devoted pages and pages to an approving account of the couple's vigorous sex life. The journal also described people coming to the door of room 10 to buy drugs. This upset Foos, but he didn't notify the police. In the past, he had reported drug dealing in his motel when he saw it, but the police took no action because he couldn't identify himself as an eyewitness to his complaints. One afternoon, Foos flushed the rest of the guy's drugs and marijuana down the toilet. He had done this before with no repercussions. This time, the man accuses his girlfriend of stealing the drugs. The journal continues, After fighting and arguing for about one hour, the scene below the voyeur turned to violence. The male subject grabbed the female subject by the neck and strangled her until she fell unconscious to the floor. The male subject then in a panic picked up all of his things and fled the vicinity of the motel. The voyeur, that's Foos, without a doubt, could see the chest of the female subject moving, which indicated to the voyeur that she was still alive and therefore okay. So the voyeur was convinced in his own mind that the female subject had survived the strangulation assault and would be all right, and he swiftly departed the observation platform for the evening. Foo's reason that he couldn't do anything anyway, because at the moment in time he was only an observer and not a reporter, and really didn't exist as far as the male and female subjects were concerned. The next morning, a maid ran into the motel office and said a woman was dead in room 10. Foos wrote that he immediately called the police. When the officers arrived, he gave them the drug dealer's name, his description, his license plate number. He did not say he had witnessed the murder. At this point, Talise is pretty sick of reading, and just over this whole story, as am I. Foos still keeps writing Talise with new information and updates. One guest has committed suicide, a 500-pound man had suffered a fatal heart attack, and firefighters had to remove him from the window. In March of 1985, after a long silence, Foos wrote to say that Donna died. Foos also said that he was dating a new woman, one who was also happy to help Foos' voyeuristic experiments. Where does he find these women? In 1991, Foos bought a second motel down the street, the Riviera. He installs four faux ventilators in the bedroom ceilings there, but the manor house was still his primary hotel. Five years later, though, Foos sold his motels and bought a ranch in the Rockies, splitting his time between it and a house on a golf course in Aurora. And he had a new interest, government and corporate surveillance. Here are my thoughts on the hotel, again, 20, 30 years after it was kind of renovated, became something else. Now, of course, the Aurora Hotel. In 2013, 33 years after Talise met him, Foos told Talise he was ready to go public. He was 78 years old. Talise was excited, mostly because he could possibly bring a murder to justice. But when Talise called the Aurora Police Department, they had no such record of that murder. This haunted Talise, but he wasn't alone. After Foos' story went public, again, it was fascinating, horrifying. There was public outrage. But, of course, as entertainment does, his rights were sold to Steven Spielberg and then Sam Mendes to create a movie about his story. But then a reporter discovered that Foos hadn't owned the hotel for part of the time recorded in his journals. Talise, of course, was freaking out because he was writing a book about Foos at Foos's encouragement. By going off the letters and the word of Foos, Talise wasn't really being journalistic about it. He was so invested for decades in this story. Their relationship became much more strained. 
The book did come out, though, and afterwards, Foos discredited a lot of the information that was in the book. A documentary film about Foos was released on Netflix on December 1st, 2017, with the title Voyeur. Talese appears in the film, and his story, Foos' story, remains as complicated as it is disturbing. This documentary is really good. It really brings up a lot of what we've talked about here in the podcast, but to see it is a lot more intense. The question remains, why did he do this? Sex? Compulsion? Having some kind of perverse purpose to his life? Maybe, says Talise, quote, he's hoping to come clean 30 years later and find some redemption. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.